So, uh, the first episode that uh, I wanted to bring to everybody comes from episode 23. So, this is uh, almost two years ago, Dave. We talked to Billy Alberton, and he shared a wealth of insights with us. So, I believe that currently he is a director of engineering at BD, at least the last time I spoke to him. So, he has certainly, you know, grew a lot in his career since the conversation we've had. Uh, and so, he shares a very interesting, I think, piece of insight with uh, or specifically for engineering leaders who are looking to grow in their career, who are looking to maybe um, grow within their company. So I'm going to play the clip and we're going to have a short discussion afterwards. Class, I think in your senior year and you talk with the school advisor and they're like, oh yeah, build a plan. And all, all students, you go through your career planning class, I think in your senior year and you talk with the school advisor and they're like, oh yeah, build a plan. And, and I think everyone should take that really serious because whether people uh, realize it or not, they're telling you to write a plan for your own life and your success. And a lot of people, I don't think, really take that as serious as probably they should be. And so why do I find that clip particularly interesting, right? So I talk to a lot of engineers who are trying to learn uh, a technical platform, right? So as you know, I run Solus PLC uh, and we teach engineers different technical skills. And I think that the common, um, not necessarily issue, but I think the common uh, thread I see is that people are struggling to plan a little bit more long-term, right? So I think a lot of us, have desires to sort of expand our, I want to say, reach in an organization, but we also want to do more interesting projects. We're looking to take on more responsibility, perhaps. But a lot of times when I have this conversation with engineers, they're looking a little bit more short term. And I think Billy makes an, a very interesting point is that you should maybe create a timeline. And he explains that in the longer version of that clip, but you should be creating a timeline, you know, five, 10 years on how you can achieve certain milestones. And if you would like to grow in an organization, what that looks like, right? And so I will also make the comment that it's not always purely on the technical side, right? So there's going to be some soft skills. There's perhaps a way to negotiate your way into taking different assignments. So I think from a career standpoint, his comment is very interesting. Dave, what are your thoughts on that? I, I thought Billy's kind of general comment of building a career roadmap and, and path was very interesting. I, I think he shared it on the show. I don't remember if it made it into show notes, but but I think he had a path kind of, I, and I think he he created the path after his time in the military before he went back to uh, to go start getting degrees was kind of everything he had done up to that point and everything that, that he wanted to do, including the, the major jump that I think he had just made uh, right after we had talked to him on the show and and I thought it was really interesting. I think that, that Billy is one of those people that is going to go spend the time. I'm going to go put in the work in, in order to make that career, uh, career roadmap and career path. I, I, I look at it um, maybe not as granularly as Billy does. Right. So I have a few things that I would like to, to get done. And typically it's over the course of the, the next 12 or 24 or, or 36 months. I, I think Billy's end goal 
uh, and, and it was as much of a joke as it was serious was to be like, like CEO or president of Apple. Right. He's like, I think that th this would be amazing. Uh, so I think that it's certainly good to have goals to, to strive towards. I think it's certainly good to have goals to strive towards. And if you don't take the time in order to reflect and plan what those goals are, you've got very little chance of succeeding uh, of succeeding overall. Let me ask you kind of a follow-up to that, Vlad. Have you gone through the process of uh, of kind of acting or enacting on uh, on any of those? Did you sit down? Do you have the next 10, 15, 20 years of what you'd like to do mapped out? Um, to be honest with you, I have maybe reasonably planned out two years ahead, right? And I'm mm -hmm. always, uh, I guess like I feel that I always play catch-up. And the comment that I would make is, you know, once you're, let's say, in a structured program, if you're going through like a bachelor's degree, master's, whatever, in, a, in any degree mm -hmm. capacity sort of way, you know that you're going to be there, let's say, two to five years, for example. And I think it gives you that, um, how to say, it, like long, longer term view. But once you graduate, it's up to you to set up those goals and achievements. And there is no structure uh, other than the one that you create yourself, right? And so to answer your question, mm -hmm. I've always had a spreadsheet that I keep up up to a certain date. I want to say I review it every couple of months or so that has, you know, like professional and maybe personal goals. But I would say my current horizon has always been uh, that two years. I certainly could be doing a little bit better when it comes to that long-term planning. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Are, are having gone back and, and listened to the Billy's episode and these clips, are, are you going to go spend some time uh, this this weekend and, and build out a longer than two year career path as to, to where you want to be in five years? Can we come back on episode 110 or 115 and and ask you what that's going to look like? I don't know if I'm going to divulge all the items on my list, but we can certainly okay. check back in and see how the process went because I do plan to revisit uh, my goals list. Um, sooner rather than later, for sure. Perfect. I think that I think that that is fantastic. We we will mark it down. Uh, so next, I want to go to episode twenty two. Uh, back with Sam Gupta. So for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Sam is, is one of my very good friends. He does a lot of work on the ERP side, and I spend a lot of time with him and his show on Thursday afternoons uh, talking about ERP and digital transformation and how kind of the intersection of those. Uh, so here we ask Sam in order to talk to us about what APIs are. So API is a term designed for salespeople to make it easy so that they can explain how sure. integration works between two systems, to be honest, okay? And mm -hmm. if you are going to ask this question, hey, can the system talk to the other system? They're going to say, hey, I've got APIs. We can talk to every single <laughs> system. That's right. Plug right? We've got plug. APIs, but APIs are supposed to be just the face of the system. Okay, it's not integrated unless you are talking about pre-baked integration. Okay, then you are going to have the integration that you are going to get uh, out of the box. But you are a programmer bled yourself. When you write a program, what you need to do is you need to know about each and every line that you have to write in your program. If you don't know that, if those requirements are not defined, you cannot write the program. You cannot test the program either, right? Now, the biggest problem with manufacturing organizations, if you go to any manufacturing shop there, okay, they just don't know their own business. 
Okay, right. they they just don't know their own requirements. In fact, there was a comment in one of the podcasts that we did recently that forty percent of the business processes that you might have that nobody will have any clue on. Okay, <laughs> they will just not know what is happening inside the organization. So the only insight they are going to have is going to be sixty percent. And by the way, in that sixty percent is what your sales department knows, your operations department does not know. What your operations department knows, your accounting department does not know. And so, uh, I, I honestly think that uh, Sam's definition of what an API is m- might be one, certainly top ten funniest moments of the uh, of the show. And and as I was looking back on that. Um, I, I loved I loved his comments. Uh, but Vlad, I'll go kick it over to you. What what were your thoughts? Uh, what were your thoughts on that? Look, I certainly resonate with what he's saying. I personally hate the term API, right? Because it's been thrown many times in my face as a means to or the ability to connect to something without any further context, right? And so, what I mean by that is there is no standard for what an API is needs to do or what it might contain and so i think it's very easy for anyone to throw that word around again without giving any context so in reality what happens is every i think piece of hardware most software has an api right but the difficulty to connect through that api is left entirely to the user so it becomes not necessarily i guess the word would be frustrating to be told there's an API for that and then not necessarily know what's the amount of work or what, how, how does the API even work? Right. So mm-hmm. that, that's, so that's why, you know, I laugh in that description and I, and I certainly agree. And I, I know that there's a lot of different tools and I think, you know, the comment that I will make is that on the industrial side, I think that an API is not as standardized as maybe in traditional software. So I think that I've, gotten that sentiment that in software it is going to be very well documented you know it's going to be in in some sort of format typically you can expect like a json answer or maybe it's a function call that you have to make Mm -hmm. but in manufacturing it just broadens the scope and so it becomes very difficult and very i want to say meaningless to say like there's an api where you don't know what you're trying to connect to or what uh, the information flow is going to be Okay. I, I think it's interesting. I, I think to kind of some large extent, the, the definition of an API is helpful in the extent that we have considered how do we integrate these things. Uh, to Sam's point and to your point, Vlad, I think that that is just, especially in manufacturing and especially when we look at things like ERP, this is just a starting point, right? We're not going to go connect our control system into, uh, yeah, we're not going to go connect our control system into our ERP through a single API. And suddenly we can go find, I don't know, five, 10, 20,000 fields and they're all magically connected, right? So for me, Mm -hmm. hearing that there's an API means that we're thinking, how do we connect these? And generally it's better than when people just kind of shrug and say, you know, people generally have to do one-to-one calls uh, through some sort of middleware, which may or may not exist, and we may or may not have documented uh, over the course uh, over the course of an integration. So I think we're moving forward. I think APIs are a move in the correct direction, and I think that we're certainly seeing a lot of younger companies, a lot of software-based companies moving into our industry. 
looking at it and saying, yes, you know, we need to have APIs. APIs are standard, and hopefully we've got better payload information. Hopefully we've got better documentation, and that hopefully will get better over the next few years. Yeah, I would agree. And see, Dante is making a, a really good comment. So he's yeah. saying that ease of use of an API tends to be proportional to the size of the user base, right? And I think mm -hmm. inherently our industry is fairly small, at least compared to some of the other software industries. And therefore, our APIs are reasonably less documented than, uh, as I said, uh, that you would find in software. So it, become, it becomes difficult, right? Like my, if, whenever somebody tells me there's an API for this, I typically assume that there's a protocol that this can talk to over Ethernet or Profinet, whatever that might look like, but nothing else, right? Until I look into the documentation. Valid. Um, so next clip, if you want me to move us forward into that, comes from Benson. So Benson spoke to us again. This was almost two years ago now on episode 43 Benson is the VP at Opto22, one of our sponsors that month as well. And Benson has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to how control systems came to be, uh, why they are the way we see them in the field. And so he shared a lot of information in that episode, but I wanted to play a clip, which I think is very important to, I want to say, today's atmosphere and sentiments towards you know, Industry 4.0, IIoT, and some of the newer emerging technologies. So let's take a quick listen. When Ethernet came out, the Ethernet IO product for Opto, and others were doing Ethernet as well, uh, one of the reasons why they said this will never work is because it was only 10 megabits per second. And it worked with a technology called hubs, meaning it was a completely shared medium. Anybody who had access to the wire could communicate. And, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons that people said, well, this will never work. But here's the thing. We knew that there was a lot of research and development in the notion of Ethernet just by itself for IT networks to make them faster, to make them deterministic, to make them everything that we needed them to be. Uh, and that's an advantage of in this evolution. If we're, if we're adopting technologies that may be outside of our industry and pulling them into our industry, and, and figuring out how that can help solve a problem. The other byproduct of that is we've got these massive companies, Cisco, 3Com, you know, these are companies back in the time that were all about ethernet. They are investing millions of dollars. So why I think the, you know, the comment that Benson makes is really interesting, right? Because I think that in many instances, when we have a conversation with a newer technology, that is being brought into our space, there's a lot of assumptions that the suggestion might be to roll it out across the floor, immediately rip and replace all of your systems and set this up as the default new way of doing things, right? And I think that it's important to see the distinction between that approach and, hey, we're going to maybe allocate some resources and some efforts in understanding where this might go, what it takes to implement this so that when the time is right for our specific organization, we can use that technology rather than stay with, uh, you know, I'm going to mention there's some very old PLCs on the production floor and there's this exponential almost cost curve that is associated with obsolete, uh, at least control systems. But so you get into this maybe tech that 
that uh, because your personnel was not trained on newer solutions, they've never took the time. And again, I'm not suggesting that they divert all efforts, mm -hmm. but there's a time where you need to put out the fires on the shop floor. And there's a time where, hey, you can maybe tinker with something a little bit different that you might find a use case for. So I really like the way Benson eloquently explained the way Ethernet came to be and the way pushbacks were made against Ethernet technology. And I could tell you, again, and Dave, you probably already know this, but there are several protocols that Rockwell developed in response to Ethernet being not fast enough, which were control net and device net, mm -hmm. that could allow you to be a lot more deterministic. But as Ethernet became a lot better through the user base, ultimately now everything pretty much runs on Ethernet and it's extremely reliable and has become so over the years. Uh, what are your thoughts, you know, maybe on what the, the point that Benson has made, but also on how we're seeing the adoption on some of these different technologies today? Absolutely. So, so first, I want to bring the point out that I think Benson has had the best setup of anyone that we've ever talked to. And I think I told him that uh, during the show. Uh, Hank down in the comments was saying how the whole Benson episode was a fantastic episode. Uh, he watched it live and then he went back to, to rewatch it. I think that the whole every conversation that I've got to have with Benson over the last handful of years has been amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely has been amazing. I I think that there there's an interesting kind of balance between te tech debt and everything future looking in our industry. And I think Benson kind of kind of hit that really well. Right. So Opto 22 was very much at the forefront of a whole bunch of different uh, of, of, of a whole bunch of different solutions. Right. And Benson was even telling us how some of them, you know, th they knocked out of the park and, and how others, you know, they spent a lot of money and a lot of time. And in many other companies, he probably wouldn't be working there anymore because it, it just didn't work out. So I think that it is the responsibility of the vendors. I think it's the responsibility of the, of the integrators, of the technologists, of the practitioners to go continue to be forward looking and to continue to help and work down the path of we need to provide the best current and or next generation set of technology for when end users are, are ready to go through the process of upgrading. I, as I, as I look at kind of the, the process of end users upgrading and, and Vlad, you know, this and, and longtime listeners know that I spent a number of years in systems integration and a number of years in distribution uh, before that. Uh, I mean, I spent a whole lot of years trying to convince people to upgrade old hardware because it was old and because at some point it would break. And, and honestly, some of that hardware has been, in those facilities as long or longer th than I've been alive, uh, especially when we look at some of those, those old PLC1s, PLC2s, PLC3s uh, floating around or some of the old original modicons uh, that, that, you, that you see pictures of every couple of years, right? But they, they've been floating around longer than, than many of us, longer than a number of us have been alive. Um, and sometimes it's just hard to go convince people to go make those changes, especially because you very rarely hear about successes, right? I'm sure Vlad has done a number of successful PLC migrations and updates. I have done a number of successful PLC migrations and updates. And you don't hear about those. What, what you do hear is about the facility that everything was supposed to be ready to go. 
but maybe we hired the wrong people. Maybe we overlooked the planning. Maybe we missed some, some core key components within uh, the BOM. And now the facility is down for, for two or three weeks, right? You hear about those stories. You hear about the stories of, hey, we didn't migrate our stuff. And now I just spent $50,000 for the controller cards of a PLC5 because I have a PLC5 that is down. Hopefully this thing that I found on eBay is, is able to uh, to go and run my PLC until we get to the point of spending the same amount or maybe less just completely migrating out of that. So I, I think it's, it's really difficult, especially when you look at end users and those end users are very typically in the firefighting process. So it is... It is. I, I think we need to continue to educate. I think we need to go continue to, to push uh, different solutions forward. I'll throw out a couple of other guests that, that we had similar conversations with, uh, and we can go look up the, the episodes on show notes. Uh, we talked to John Detellum, uh from Siemens talking about that and kind of his, he, he's done a lot of work in automotive. And so looking in autom looking and working in automotive, he his basically best recommendation is when you get to the point of you decide to or you need to or you have to go through the upgrade process, go through the upgrade process and buy the, the bleeding edge or as close to the bleeding edge generation of solutions as you possibly can because you're going to need that to last you for the next uh, 20 or, or 30 years. And then I'll also throw out Alan Ray. Uh, Alan is currently working with, with Integrate Live. Um, Alan was on and he was... I think during the episode, I know he's, he's working on it now, but I think during the episode, he was talking about how he could actually take like, like an opto, how he could take a couple of other things and for a fairly insignificant price point per IO, go do large scale uh, PLC and, and PAC uh, in, uh, yeah, upgrades um, and implementations. And so I would say also those uh, very good episodes to, uh, to to take a listen to. You, do you have any thoughts on on those, Vlad? Uh, I, I I know I threw a bunch of extra stuff out at you. I look. I mean, I think we can have an episode on sort of like best practices of systems integration mm -hmm. uh, alone. I think that again, everything comes with a slight risk, right? Like regardless of the decision you make. So you want to minimize the exposure to that risk. And what I mean by that is, let's say you have, you know, 10 production lines running. I certainly, again, I would never suggest to a customer to go rip and replace the entire infrastructure, right? But what I would typically suggest is if you have a new line coming in and you have an engineering team that is fairly capable on the current platform, well, maybe you throw in a few extra thousand dollars to allow them to experiment with a different platform, right? And that's necessarily not the easy solution. And perhaps you're, or I guess the worst case would be that they lose a little bit of time, you lose some money, and you have to revert back to the solution you know. But in the best case, if the original manufacturer, if there's any problems, if there's a need to replace those parts, now they have sort of two notches on their belt, right? And mm -hmm. so they understand the nuances of each system. They've gotten a chance to work on a project that, again, had some potential risk. But in my book, that risk has been minimal because you can always go back. And obviously, you should have a plan of how to go back to the original system. And if that's, you know, maybe that's too much risk, then perhaps just buy a couple of controllers or different maybe servo drives or VFDs mm -hmm. and put them in a, in a training room. 
in my opinion, you know, that's going to be a little bit less used than a real life project, but I think it's also an alternative to give uh, the employees or the people working on these systems some exposure to uh, the newer technologies that we've been discussing. And I think a lot of our industry has been uh, in conversation with as a whole. Absolutely. I will say, Vlad, one of my most favorite things is your desire and demand for everyone to go take their, their stable hardware software platforms that they've been running for, for a generation or two and just throw in a whole bunch of new hardware and software. That, that, that is I just think that's of, the right approach, Dave. You, I, you and, and that's I, I, I understand that you think that's the right approach. I, I just love how, how novel it is compared to everyone else thinking, hey, I've got X platform. I'm going to continue to roll with X platform because it's what brought me here and it's what's going to make me through the rest of my career. I will say only someone who has as many different types of controllers on the board behind them as you currently do uh, as the technologist side would be like, hey, I really want 12 different controllers from, from eight different companies uh, within my facility. I mean, look, the comment I will make is that you're not necessarily doing it to have multiple controllers, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the cutting edge companies of the world in manufacturing have R&D centers, right? And they're constantly mm -hmm. looking to make sure, hey, do we have the latest and greatest? Hey, is there maybe some of the features that we can unlock with a different platform? Hey, mm -hmm. can we upskill our people or at least a portion of the people, right? Like I'm not saying, hey, go set everybody to this specific platform's uh, training, but mm -hmm. again, maybe one Full manufacturing line is a is a big example. Maybe it's a piece of machinery. Maybe it's you know just a, a very simple sort of auxiliary piece of machinery that's going to run on that component. But at least getting that understanding allows you to see what is possible with again some of the newer technologies. Is there a benefit to the business? I think that a real case project is always going to be better than you know a test bench, which I wanted to say is second best option in this case but i i think again the top companies in mm -hmm. the world are having r d departments that are going to test every single control and and i love that vlad and you want to know i i guess a, a little bit of behind the scenes uh for, for everyone watching who, who may or may not know i feel like vlad always likes to ask the live wire question right um and and my joke is a thousand percent of the time we go into a show saying hey vlad let's not go touch a topic vlad um like within the first 15 minutes asks on that topic so uh we're gonna pull a a clip from our safety roundtable with Zach Stank and John Piller. Uh, I think Zach is in the comments. Hey, hey Zach, I, I warned him that this was going to be it. Going into this, I believe the exact comment was, hey, Vlad, let's not start a flame war about what e-stops are and what e-stops aren't. Uh, so we're going to go roll the clip. Question of, do I drop the power at the top of the VFD or at the bottom of the VFD? Who cares? It stops movement of the motor, right? That's mm. That's the result. Do I drop power at the, you know, the service entrance of the machine? Stops, stops power, right? It achieves the action. So the purpose of code, the purpose of the NFPA is not to tell you how to engineer it. It's to tell you the minimum requirements for proper craftsmanship. Gotcha. Yeah. I can and, and I would say, Vlad, that, you know, getting into, because you're talking about two different concepts is what is required versus how do I design it? Yeah. And 
and the design can be very different depending on who you're talking to and in, depending on what country you're in and depending on what customer you're talking to. Because, you know, we sell components that go into machines that ultimately get sold to an end user, you know, and, and they would use them. In the United States, the end user is responsible for the safety of the machine. So by, by definition, whoever buys the machine is responsible for making sure that it is safe, right? And so the second that it leaves my dock and goes and hits your dock and we complete payment, it is no longer my problem, you know, to, to worry about how that machine is being used. And that's kind of opposite of the way everyone else in the world sees safety. And I, we were actually on the line with Zach uh, a little bit earlier today. And I, we, we were talking about, I think, a special that we're going to have talking about the cybersecurity or the Cyber Resilience Act uh, that is coming out and is in process in the EU. And I specifically want to hit on kind of the difference as to the onus of safety, right? Uh, so I guess I find it maybe not shocking, but, but a bit confusing that the end user specifically needs to make sure that their their everything right their equipment is up to safety standards especially if they go through the process of paying someone uh at a systems integration company or a machine builder in order to go through the process of building that w what are your thoughts on that uh, vlad i know that you've gone through a number of builds from the end user perspective uh yeah i Look, I think it's a very interesting conversation. I think that safety is certainly not as covered in our industry or not as openly discussed as it probably should be. And I think I've made that comment in the past. Mm -hmm. But um, look, maybe like to start off, like in my experience, at least like the first uh, job I was at in the manufacturing facility, safety was, you know, number one priority. And they would say it and they would actually live it, right? So okay. to paint you maybe a picture if you didn't have gloves, right? Like gloves that are protecting you from voltage that have been inspected in the last six months, you could be immediately walked off the floor, right? <laughs> if you didn't have your name on a lockout tagout lock, right? Like on a physical lock, even yep. though it's locked and it's properly, you're properly locked out, tagged out, mm -hmm. but your name is not on the lock, then you could yep. also be walked off yep. the floor, right? So there's uh, and, and, you know, obviously you had to follow every single procedure. You had to have like a face shield if you were opening a cabinet above 50 volts. So there were a lot of safety procedures on the electrical side, but also a lot of safety procedures on the devices, right? So if you were properly, let's say, de-energizing a machine with a key that you were putting into a different uh, sort of slot, then I had a lot of confidence in the design that it would de-energize the proper systems for me to safely access whatever I needed in order to, you know, troubleshoot or maybe work with an operator, explain some of the systems to them. Mm -hmm. But my point is that once I went to other manufacturing plants, having spent, you know, a number of years at that one, I realized that the safety standards are, I guess the wording I would use is a free-for-all, but maybe to frame that a little bit different is are way worse than what I thought they would be across the industry, right? Like that's yep. kind of like my general sentiment. And so from that experience, I always shied away from, you know, designing safety systems because I know how 
difficult and intricate they truly are. Mm -hmm. And even I would be, how to say it, not necessarily fully comfortable putting my stamp of approval to the safety systems that I've seen in the field. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times what this also leads to is that I don't have all the confidence in the world, so I need to double check what's been designed when I lock out, take out a machine and I, mm -hmm. you know, either reach inside or decide to, to work on it. So to bring this back maybe to Zach's and, and John's conversation, I think that I'll, the state of the industry is that there's certainly a lot that can be improved. I understand that the regulations and the ownership off or does fall on the end user of that machine or the end owner of that machine. But the problem is that there's a lot of gray areas. And again, I'm certainly not a lawyer where if this machine has not been modified, then it followed a standard, you know, from the 1970s that is completely different. So it's easy to, as an engineer, to fall in the trap of, hey, I'm going to assume that this is going to be safe when in reality, it's not the same level of safety as you would find now. And I guess the last point I would also make is that Typically, I trust, you know, the OEMs or the providers slash suppliers of those parts to give me the right information, right? So to the conversation we had around like e-stops, my initial reasoning is that if the OEM is labeling that as an e-stop and they are legally supplying within the US, then I can reasonably make the assumption that it is a compliant e-stop. But I guess what I've learned is that may not always be the case and again it certainly is something that i would have to look in further to make that assessment but that's maybe those are my sentiments when it comes to that conversation absolutely uh i, I am i'm really happy that we got to have that safety round table last year i am confident that we will continue to to talk about safety because safety is important i guess for as many facilities that i've been to that actually preach safety first and are safety first. I have probably been to the, the better part of a hundred facilities that maybe, maybe not even talk about safety, or if they do talk about safety, right. it's obvious that safety doesn't actually matter. Uh, and so I know that you've talked about those facilities where you can get walked out for, for doing something, I don't know, stupid. I think those stupid things make it really easy for, for people to just to, to literally die, right? I, and I think yep. that when I look at when I look at facilities, when I look at things like that, I feel like we can go so far, right? So so, so we can bend, we can have different conversations so far, but at the point in time in which hey, someone could actually die, that that's when we all have to take a step back. I I think I told the story. Um, on this show, I was at a couple of facilities last year where I'm like, hey, you know, what you did was really stupid. And then I, I looked at like chemical compounds and stuff. And I'm like, hey, you you might need to go to the hospital. And they're like, oh, no, I'm OK. And managers and supervisors were like, oh, maybe we'll look into it. It doesn't particularly matter. And that was the last week I was with those facilities because I can only say so much. And I don't need it on my conscious or, or to be there if someone were to, were to do something really bad and, uh, and die. So I think that it is all, it, it is all relative. I, I actually like the, the names or pictures of, of people on the lockout tag out locks. Uh, that way, you know who to go find 
if something is, yep. is locked out. Uh, I was at a facility, I think, end of last year. Someone had locked out what they thought was the whole cell, but then someone else went to go move a different part of like the cell next to that, and the person in the cell almost got hit by a robot because how we designed it may or may not have been to appropriate specifications and lockout tag out of what should have been the cell didn't actually work. Th that person got walked off the site for, for good as, as they very well should be. Yeah, exactly. And, and look, I, I think we probably all have, you know, different horror stories on the safety side and we can make it an entire, you know, separate round table as well. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a comment that I will make is that for a control systems engineer who understands you know, safety circuits, it's fairly straightforward to make them to their design, right? But that doesn't mean that they should be creating the design. And that also means that somebody should be validating that design with the appropriate knowledge. And maybe the story that I will tell is that I remember I had this palletizing project, which involved a massive FANUC robot that was stacking these large boxes onto a pallet. And I remember the uh, the manager that was leading that project had asked me to add a bypass for the light curtains, you know, that were going to be used to walk into that cell so that they could service it faster whenever, you know, the pallet <laughs> would spill. They wouldn't have to reset the robot because obviously, you know, if you disconnect the safeties, a lot of time uh, that kind of drops the robot where it's at and it de-energizes it. Uh, the right way, so to speak, right? And obviously, mm -hmm. it, it's very easy to work with these circuits. I think they're making them a little bit more complicated. I know, at least on the uh, guard logics line, they've introduced this. Uh, it's really interesting, actually. They do like pulses instead of, you know, straight 24-volt signals. I don't know if you've ever uh, implemented or looked at those data sheets, but they created so that it's it's pulsed between different devices and the configuration cannot just be rewired in the field, Right. But the traditional 24 volt safety, it's very easy to just add two jumpers between, you know, a number of devices and you're pretty much uh, ready to go. That way it's locked out like on the software side as well. And if it, you know, senses a misconfiguration or rewiring, it's going to lock you out. But the point I'm trying to make is that it's very easy to design and bypass the system. And I've seen a lot of those sort of like weird requests. And I think it's very important as the industry to step away from projects like that and be very firm in saying like, no, we're not going to implement a bypass that's going to put somebody's <laughs> uh, life in danger, even though technically it's not that difficult. Right. But it, it's, and, and to be honest with you, I don't even know if there's, I know that there's code obviously that governs this, but I certainly did not have the knowledge of those codes at the time. And I just said like, mm -hmm. no, this is not something we can do, but I, I can tell you that those conversations happen elsewhere. And the answer is like, yes, we will add a bypass and this system is going to be amazing. Yeah. Uh, bypasses always, the, the word bypass always starts to worry me as, as I feel like it should worry everyone. Um, I, I will make uh, one, one comment. I, I really like those light curtains uh, replacing uh, panels, replacing kind of plexiglass that, that we see covering machines. I think they're really slick, especially if you have to get in and out of different sides of machines. I, I've seen a number of them over the uh, over the last few years and and honestly as as i think about the the relatively inexpensive cost of light curtains 
and the, the relatively inexpensive cost of probably code into already existing PLCs, et cetera, it, uh, it makes me wonder how much more expensive they could possibly be over plexiglass because uh, thick, large pieces of plexiglass uh, are expensive and difficult to clean and all of these other things. And so it makes me wonder when and, and if we will see more uh, kind of newer machines built like that, or if there are any machine builders in, in the comments or anything like that, uh, would, would love to hear if you are seeing more of those requirements. Uh, before, well, I'm sorry, go ahead, Vlad. Uh, I was just going to make the comment. I think that the only trade-off, right, is if you do mm -hmm. break that pane of, uh, you know, the light curtain, you do shut down on the machine, mm -hmm. typically in a not-so-predictable way. And yep. depending on what you have in those, uh, you know, cabinets, it mm -hmm. may cause some electrical issues, right? But yeah. uh, a, a plexiglass, you physically cannot walk into it, so... Yeah, it, plex, it really plexiglass. You phys yes, no, I, I guess I, I've worked on a, a number of machines, especially in, like, food and beverage when you have to get in um, a, a lot of uh, a lot. Of, well, I guess I've seen them on, on palletizers, but I'm also seeing them on like tray plackers and uh, plastic wrap and, and other machines, especially machines that multiple times every shift you've got to get in or uh, in, in some cases, uh, multiple times every 20 or 30 minutes you have to get in in order to go fix something um, or easier for changeovers and other reasons. Um, as long as you're not going to mechanically or electrically break things, if you can move away from the plexiglass and, and the pop-up and out and all of those things into something along the lines of light curtains, the light curtains that I've seen that have been retrofit have a number of stops. I don't know if they're technically e-stops or otherwise. I'll let uh, John... And uh, let John and Zach jump in and tell me if they, they should technically be e-stops and which type of e-stops they should be. Uh, but they, they've got stops and they've got a fair number of them and you can just go uh, push them. Uh, or I, I suppose most of them are a combination of stops and then they've also got reset buttons there in, in, order, to, uh, in order to do that. Uh, before we move to the next segment, I, I wanted to make I wanted to make a comment. I guess I wanted to thank a bunch of kind of our longtime sponsors at Phoenix Contact. I wanted to thank a bunch of our longtime sponsor at Siemens. And then we've had a number of groups over the last, I guess, hundreds or so episodes now who, who have come in and sponsored us and, and helped to drive some some really awesome and uh, an interesting engagement. So I, we want to go and we want to thank all of all of those groups uh, for, for doing that. Uh, I will say when, when Vlad and I started out, this this was not necessarily our intent. Um, we, we've got a bunch of great industry partners happy to come help drive the production quality, uh, the, the back end work, and hopefully the conversations for you guys, the listeners, um, even better than we were doing starting around episode, I don't know, 20 or 30 when that started. So, so we certainly want to say thank you guys. Uh, we are certainly interested to, to go continue to work uh, along these conversations. If you guys, the listeners have thoughts upon conversations or themes that you'd be interested in us having, please feel free to let us know. And I will throw it out there. If there are any groups interested in coming to go put a theme together with us, we've got some really cool ideas and are always listening uh, and are always happy to listen uh, to what you guys are thinking as well. Awesome. No, that sounds really good. Um, the next clip, Dave, is from Shane Ditrich conversation. Ditrich, I believe that is the way you pronounce his last name. Episode 54. So Shane started an integration company that focused on robotics 
the point that I wanted to bring or the discussion I wanted to bring is around, you know, starting to productize a service company. And I think that's a very interesting transition. I certainly think that it's a very difficult one. And he will make a few good points be, uh, based on that. So let's listen to the clip and we'll, we can have a discussion. You know, an XYZ company, they want all Alan Bradley and they want all, you know, they have their list of uh, preferred vendors that they want us to use. Well, we would always try to stick to our preferred vendors, which would be ABB, like we've never integrated any other robot than ABB. But, you know, and uh, so, so you kind of bounce around as a system integrator, trying to ebb and flow in between these you know, these customers on custom systems, right? And you got to be flexible on that because some want something different than somebody else. When you go to standardization, well, mm -hmm. boy, that, that's a different world. So the clips, uh, the clip cuts a little bit short. So he makes a, a point following that, you know, on how to implement different standards and how to balance between standardizing and remaining flexible with your customers, which I think, again, is a challenge that a lot of systems integrators face. And we've certainly had a number of them come and talk to us on the manufacturing hub. I think that it's a very, uh, I keep saying very difficult transition, but a very interesting one as well, right? So as you are a, what I want to say like a rogue warrior, you go on site and you are going to be helping or being, first of all, billing by the hour you're working on whatever system is thrown at you, I think your ultimate goal is to find ways to um, productizing, I guess, is, is, is a, I want to say a very loosely defined term, but you want to find ways to reapply what you've done out of a customer to other customers, right? So if you found value, for example, in building a system that allows you to extract data and then showcase, for example, something as simple as OEE, and you're able to be that single bundle that leverages, you know, a couple of technologies to present that, then you can take that component and bring it to other customers. And I guess I was also wondering, Dave, like on your side, what are your thoughts on, again, going from consulting work to productizing? But I also want to dive into a few other topics uh, that Shane had discussed with us on that episode. Absolutely. <clears throat> so... I, I think my background and experience with, with, with taking service-based offerings and turning them in, into products are, are probably different uh, th than most people. I think that as a general rule, I'm a big fan. Uh, I think that if you do something well and you have a number of people who ask you to do the same thing over and over again, you can take that service and you can turn it into a product. And I think you, you should turn it into a product. I guess in my experience, it is a little bit more upfront time. But if you turn that and you build it into a module, if you take an SDK of some sort of platform and go kind of build it off of that, or even if you just have a repository of code that you use over and over again, you have a product as to if you're selling it as a product and, and gaining uh, dollars off of the IP that you have into that product or you're selling it as a service, th those are those are two different questions. So 
generally speaking, I think that if someone, if you have a number of people that ask you to go build something or do a something or something very similar over and over and over again, you have a very easy opportunity to take a, hey, we can do anything for you service. Say we focus on these three things as to if we want to call them products, if we want to call them services, almost doesn't matter. But if you get known for us one somethings or a number of something similar to what, what Shane has been doing uh, with what they were doing with, with House of Design and the robotics. And, and he went in on that episode talking a little bit more specifically about a number of things uh, that they were focusing on. I think it was two or three or a handful of applications to, uh, to, to do that. I think it, it's very good and Honestly, more people should move into that. What are your thoughts on that, Vlad? I know that you have a couple of other a, a couple of other topics that you want to bring into that. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I to some degree agree with your with your points on on productizing. I think it's an interesting leap, but like I said, I, I think it's a very difficult one, and I I think that you, it certainly needs to lend itself to the market. I think if you find something that is. Uh, Easy to bundle, I think, would be difficult for me to say, but is bundleable, mm -hmm. right? If you can reapply from one customer to the other, but also if you have a number of customers that are looking for that product, which again could be uh, a challenge. But I, I think it's an interesting uh, branch. But in any case, uh, the other point, you know, with Shane, I think we discussed robotics fairly extensively. Mm -hmm. So he comes from primarily a robotics company, as mm -hmm. he mentioned. They worked extensively on ABB robots. And so with robotics, at least currently, the interesting trend is uh, robots as a service or, you know, machine as a service. I think we've seen a number of cells come out uh, from bright machines that leverage robotics. So I, I was wondering, you know, what your thoughts were on that model. And I think we've talked a few episodes before on uh, machine as a service, but I think it's worth maybe revisiting that just very briefly. Um, absolutely. Vlad, Vlad, I feel like it's almost like you, you read the show notes and, and knew what was coming up next. Uh, so, so we're actually going to have one of the folks uh, from Brent Machines, Adam Montoya, uh, come on and, and talk about what it was to reshore the, the Mac uh, for Apple. And, and we will go ahead and, uh, and talk about that. Uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and talk about that next. But your question to me was machine as a service, uh, robot as a service. I, I, I think a couple of things. One, I absolutely am willing to, to recommit to do at least another robotics theme at, at some point in the course of 2023. I think we had a great time doing it last year. Um, and then having talked to a whole bunch of robotics people uh, past that, uh, I think that there are huge opportunities to, to, to talk and continue to talk about robotics. Um, beyond robotics, uh, I'm a big fan of robot as a service or machine as a service. I think that there are very particular applications in which works or, or doesn't work for them. I think if you have the word fortune before any number, be it 50 or 5,000 or 10,000, you're probably not the target market for robot or machine as a service. I think if you're a small to medium sized organization, call it maybe sub $500 million a year, then there are certainly opportunities to go leverage robotics or machine as a service, uh, especially if there are positive contractual opportunities for you guys. And if you don't have the necessary cash flow 
or the desire or ability to go get a bank loan for something like that. Or maybe the interest rates are going up and it's cheaper to go rent the thing, take the, uh, take the tax write-offs for renting uh, or leasing the, the machine and then move beyond that. And then I would say kind of to the small and medium side, so single-digit millions up through maybe $100 or $200 million a year, I think that there's really real opportunity, especially when we look on fairly standard items. So when I talk about standard items, my most favorite uh, item to talk about are, are palletizers, Vlad. Uh, I don't know if I've worked with a single organization who said, Dave, I love my palletizer. You can change everything about what we have. You can go change out all the employees. I want my palletizer. Now, uh, palletizers are generally pains in the butt. They are generally exceptionally repetitive. They are generally fairly low stress. Um, and even in fairly high production, high numbers of cases, they typically don't have to move super fast. And so I think because of a number of these things, it's, it's a good opportunity to leverage something along the lines of a palletizer in order to say, hey, can I go rent this? Or, hey, I could really use a new palletizer. It's going to be eight or 18 months in order to get mine. Can I go buy a mostly off-the-shelf application? And by buying a mostly off-the-shelf application, be able to leverage that into getting it quicker, even if it costs me a little bit more in the long run. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, what we agreed on in our last conversation about uh, robot slash machine as a service, we would love to have someone who could maybe explain to us the financials or some of those deals a little bit better. So if you are one of those people, if you know one of those people, definitely would be interested in having a conversation because I think it all comes down to uh, whether it is worth uh, for your organization to go that route. And I certainly am not as uh, familiar with uh, what those deals look like. But I, we would be very happy to have that conversation on the manufacturing. Absolutely. Uh, I actually I actually have a person. Uh, whenever we come Good. to robotics, uh, his name is also Dave, uh, which, which will always make for interesting conversations. Uh, but moving away from that, I want to go talk. Uh, so episode 61, Adam Montoya from Bright Machines uh, were coming in. Uh, so if you guys don't know Bright Machines, they make, uh, they make a lot of kind of very modular cells that are really easy to go change what they're doing. So they, they focus especially on the consumer electronic. So their, their cycle is a little bit different. Like if you think of, of iPhones, right? So basically once a year, you are completely changing the, all of the lines to run the iPhone. And you're going to run like crazy for nine or 10 months. And then you've got a couple of months worth of changeover, and then you're going to run like crazy for nine or ten months. So they make super, uh, they make make super flexible offerings for that. Uh, and so here, Adam gave one of like the most interesting, uh, one of the most interesting stories he had. He was part of the team that helped Apple reshore the the Mac Pro from uh, I think the either the most recent generation or it might've been the trash can Mac. I don't remember which one they started. Uh, they started uh, making in the U S but uh, hang out with us for, for three or four minutes. Uh, we've got a, a really good clip and, and a great story from, uh, from Adam. You know, originally somebody inside of, you know, the Apple ecosystem said we want to, we really want to understand what it would take to actually reshore something. We want to know how hard it is. And we'll talk, you know, the, 
that the subject matter that you guys want to discuss was like, how do you do it? How do you accelerate it? I'll tell you kind of the story of what they went through and mm-hmm. they have unlimited resources and incredibly smart people. Um, just you, if you, if you think you think that they're smart, uh, if you haven't had the opportunity to work with them, uh, brace yourself. Uh, but they went on this journey and said, let's figure out if this is feasible and they looked at their product portfolio and said, all right, what is going to be, um, you know, lower risk. You could never, you, you could never have even pitched the ideas of the phone. At that point mm-hmm. in time, the, the phone was selling more units in one day. And, and I don't know the figures, but Gartner does. They were selling more of those phones in one day than the entire year of the, you know, the, the desktop. And, and it wasn't to say that the desktop didn't sell well. That was to say that the phone was just incredibly high volume. And so they picked one and they said, okay, well, we've got to figure out the supply chain first. Um, and I think somebody from manufacturing ops probably said, no, 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 no. You've got to figure out manufacturing ops first. And then somebody from test said, do we even know how to make fixtures in the Americas anymore? So they had to go figure it all out. Mm-hmm. What people do when they're trying to go onshore, the, the, the smart thing to do is is to either <clears throat> hire a partner um so a contract manufacturer that has a footprint mm-hmm. in the americas um and that short circuits half of it right because they they know the process the tooling the supply chain the trade routes they've already kind of got that stuff and i think that um you know i don't know what what tim's long game is but i don't think that they wanted to stand up another factory Right. I don't think that they wanted to own that. It's, it's a huge, um, it's a huge pain to manage. Right. So I think that they, they really wanted to be experts in managing supply chain and supplier management. So they partnered, um, with, with, you know, a, a world-class contract manufacturer and they said, okay, you guys know how to do this manufacturing process. You don't exactly know our manufacturing process. Um, but we're going to come teach you and, you know, somewhere in the middle, we'll find a happy medium. Um, and it was, it was good and very, very painful. And I'll, I'll tell you why it was painful was because they were so used to working in China mm-hmm. and the workforce is very different, um, between China and Texas. So the first thing was, you know, figuring out what the labor model would support. And so we knew basically it was a spreadsheet exercise that to be cost competitive, we had to reduce this percentage of the labor. And it was, it was uh, at the time, it was a comically high percentage. It was, it was like, that's, that's not possible. And, and as a team, you know, both for the customer and the service provider side, we, we said, this is where we have to get to. Um, and we, we have to mechanize uh, a ridiculously high percentage. And we set off and made multiple work streams to do this. And it took us about a year. And it was a really interesting project in that we stood up a factory. Um, we brought in engineers. I had an army of folks. Uh, there were there were 500 people hired for this, and um, nobody knew what was going on. Like there's like skunk works turned up to 11. The level of secrecy that those guys are able to maintain is unlike anything I had ever seen before. And I think I had like a personal NDA that, you know. I'm not allowed to talk about it. this was years ago, so I can talk about it now, but, um, they, they, they kind of said, don't, don't tell anyone. And ultimately 
the slip up came from a planning and zoning official who was approving the, like, ah. the inspection and they like put it on a memo who it was going to be to support. And so that's how, that's how the world found out that um, Apple was trying their hand at, at U.S. manufacturing. Again. I love that, Vlad. I think that that was, uh, was one of my most favorite stories that, uh, that we, we listened to. Uh, what are your thoughts? Have you had the opportunity to, to work with any groups? Uh, I know there are lots of groups talking about doing some reshoring. Have you worked with, uh, with any or, or many groups uh, looking to do that and then realizing that they don't have the, the internal capabilities to, uh, to understand what's going on? Um, no, I have not, you know, worked at those levels. I think that those decisions are certainly, uh, you know, made maybe at the highest level of uh, organizations and having been in engineering teams and very, very large companies, I've not had the opportunity maybe to, uh, to look at those opportunities. I, I've heard uh, many conversations around reshoring and I've certainly maybe had questions on the technical challenges and the personnel challenges, but I've not necessarily worked through uh, such a large assignment as the Apple project that uh, Adam was describing. So I think it's very interesting and I certainly can appreciate probably the level of work that went into that and not only on the technical side, but also on the, I want to say on the human side, which I think has been probably a very big undertaking but uh yeah i can i can only relate i guess to the stories how about you dave i have certainly worked with a number of groups that at some point realized that they no longer had the internal engineering capability to uh, to do projects and uh, and it's a bit surprising right at, at first it's a bit off-putting and then they, they bring on a bunch of contractors maybe they bring on a bunch of consultants or consultants who were former employees and watching the brain drain that uh, that I've seen from a number of facilities is, I don't know, to, to some extent shocking. Uh, watching a lot of knowledge transfer go away is, is a bit crazy. Um, and, and honestly, I think that a lot of facilities are going to be to that point of, of Adam's conversation um, in the next handful of years, especially if they let people retire without the, the opportunity to go through and capture that knowledge. Uh, without the opportunity to go through and capture that knowledge. But I would say Adam's entire conversation is great. Uh, you guys should absolutely go check out episode 61 uh, with Adam Montoya. And I will, as a fun fact, uh, say that that there is a, a golden nugget in there for any of you sneakerheads out there. Uh, I think Adam is like an absolute closet sneakerhead where, where he's talking about how it is known that some groups – make sneakers like some factories or some fact days of the week, the sneakers will just be better than, than other days. And we also talked about hyper local uh, manufacturing, which, which I thought was, was absolutely interesting. Uh, yeah. Which, which I thought was absolutely um, interesting. You guys should absolutely go ahead and check that out. Sweet. Um, next clip. So clip number four on my end. So we have Rob Tiffany, very interesting personality so he posts uh quite extensively on, link on linkedin very knowledgeable guy shares a lot of his thoughts on automation iot industry 4.0 so we had a very long discussion around cloud i want to play the clip before i reveal the conversation we're about to have after this clip cloud, 
IoT players were late to the party with industrial. They did baby steps and, you know, we're probably doing more consumer looking things or what I would say is also greenfield scenarios where you're doing something from scratch. I'm building an IoT toaster or a pump or a whatever, and it's got communications, you know, built into it to do that. But industrial is harder because of all those ridiculous protocols and serial ports hanging out everywhere and PLCs and HMIs and MESs and a million other things all entrenched. So I think the, the comment, again, like relates maybe to something we've discussed a little bit earlier, but I think the common misconception is that when you suggest going to the cloud is that we need to necessarily pull everything we've got and create controls on the cloud, pull all the data in the cloud. I think that the conversation is more around what kind of technologies the software or the IT space has been using for the last you know decade now. I want to say that the cloud has really been adopted that can be reapplied to manufacturing. And I remember there was a post recently on LinkedIn where somebody said, well, the cloud is only cost effective in you know, when you have like very sporadic loads or when you have a very specific like compute scenario that you need to address that you can only do with some of the services that the cloud providers have. And, you know, my response or my approach to, to I guess, that comment is that I think that as an engineer, or as someone who works with technology, I want to be less restricted by what is available, right? And so I've certainly, I don't know what your experience has been on the IT side, but I've been in projects where it takes, you know, six months to get the server hardware at the facility installed. And that's just perhaps for a project that is large enough to even warrant that equipment in the first place, right? And so the advocacy that I'm making for cloud is, hey, I want to do a proof of concept. Hey, I want to try out this new way of gathering data. Hey, I want to see if the link is even possible to be made to collect our data into this hypothetical database. And then once we scale that to a certain point, I also understand that financials are maybe better to have on-prem, but perhaps there's other services, again, that we're, we can leverage in the cloud that allow us to do different things on the manufacturing side. And I think, again, that conversation or that um, discussion around cloud is sometimes misunderstood. I certainly am, you know, trying to push for us to try these maybe very ambitious ideas, but I think it's in the hopes that we get to see what is the limiting factor and readjust mm -hmm. accordingly, right? Like for actual continuous operations. What are your thoughts, Dave? I, I think you bring up some good points, Lad. I, I, I will say that for anyone, ooh, anyone listening, uh, we're gonna have an, an episode 101, um, actually tomorrow, in which we kind of go over and talk about ITOT convergence, and, and I'm sure uh, cloud and cloud services will uh, will be a, a major topic of conversation. Uh, so, having said that, I think cloud services are here to stay. I think in the last handful of years, we've seen the Googles, we've seen the Amazons, we've seen the Microsofts with Google Cloud Platform, Azure, and uh, AWS go through the process of investing a lot of time and a lot of money 
in cloud services for manufacturing. Uh, I think most of those have generally been pulled back for a whole bunch of reasons, including manufacturing just doesn't move that quickly on technology adoption, as well as the fact that manufacturing isn't going to go all in on, on an untested and unknown uh, series of products. Uh, so, so having said that, I think cloud is here to stay. I think the adoption will only continue to be more and more. I see a number of cloud-first solutions that have on-prem options. And while I am generally happy to leverage some cloud services, at the end of the day, there are just there are not insignificant numbers of organizations that have a facility or a number of facilities that just don't have good cellular reception, don't have the ability to, yeah, don't have the ability to have a good internet connection. So uh, a number of years ago, I looked at a, a series of water wastewater plants. Uh, it was a, it, it was as a special request uh, to, to a vendor that, that I've done a lot of work with. And so I went out there and I talked to them and we were talking about what's going on and they have one of their, their two facilities that is miles away from the nearest fiber. And literally there is a drainage ditch that runs under the, uh, th th that is like an underpass for a major highway that blocks that from basically good cellular connectivity. And there is basically no signal. Uh, the, the best signal they get is bounced off of about three repeaters and it works about 60 or 70% of the time. So th that's just one of those that at the end of the day, there is no way you're going to be able to leverage a solution that is not an on-prem solution. So I think that there are positives, that there, there are pluses and minuses. And my general prediction and general trend is we will see more cloud services. We will see more IoT style services in the cloud because people are going to be forced to adopt them if they want to leverage a bunch of these tools. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, you know, it's giving, again, your engineers the freedom to experiment with different ways of doing things. And like I said, by no means am I saying rip and replace, but I'm just saying that, uh, and I'll give maybe like a story, right? I think I've mentioned them on one of the episodes, but it's a company that uh, does these brew can packaging. So they have like the sprinter, you know, and they can spray paint a can in any design that you would like, which is different from, you know, low volume manufacturers traditionally use like a paper sleeve that you would put on top of the, so you would glue a sleeve on the can. And so what they've shown me is the application, which allowed the customers to automatically upload, you know, their designs through their website. And then that would automatically send a work order to the production floor and ultimately even change the, the way like that machine would run depending on the can size and the image for the PLC, right? Like, so mm -hmm. that would be streamlined all the way to the PLC level. But they explained to me that earlier on, they didn't have that many orders. They didn't need an intricate system. So they spun up, you know, a very basic EC2 instance in AWS, and they're able to make that connection with a single application. And as they scale, they're like, well, now we have like an ERP system that's able to collect some of that information that allows us to plan and process that information a little bit better. To bring this back to our earlier conversation, it has an API and now this application goes into the API of the ERP. It's able to cross talk together. It now has a better cybersecurity level, right? So there's maybe a load balancer as well that kind of 
acts as a firewall and sends the traffic to the right place. And ultimately, I don't think that would have been cost effective for them to say, hey, we need a server on-prem for $50,000 to be deployed for this initial project. They would have just immediately said, no, like, hey, this is not cost viable. Let's come back when we have a larger system. And so, again, I think your example of industries not having connectivity is correct, right? Mm -hmm. But I think in many other instances, a server or a setup that's going to be on-premise cost prohibitive from engineers to do these smaller tests of newer technologies and sort of simplifying the end user's life uh, to an extent, right? And and again, some projects will fail, as you know, some projects will succeed. I think it's a learning opportunity. Sometimes you overrun your cloud provider's bill and you have to pay mm-hmm. a huge premium on that, but that's an entirely different, I think, discussion. Yeah, I think that proof of concept, I think that we will see more and more proof of concept. And as we look at proof of concept, I think software as a service style solutions, I think cloud-based solutions allows us to, for very little, big chunks of money, go try things. And if we're trying things in production or if we're trying things on on test benches uh, to see if it works to, to look if it goes in production, I think all of those are kind of valuable paths forward. What I do know is that IoT, IIoT, uh, and kind of all sorts of these cloud and SaaS-based solutions are going to allow people to test more things at a much quicker rate um, and or especially for, for application-style solutions, probably get some free trials if, if that's what you really need in order, to, uh, in order to test some things out. But I want to take a hard left um, about as far as one can get from cloud-based solutions and that. And I'm going to go kick it over to Tim Wilborn, and we're going to talk about ladder logic. That's, a, that's probably the number one comment I get. Um, well, it's not a hater comment. It's still a constructive <laughs> comment. Um, and, you know, it's interesting is I actually got in, when I got in this industry, I, you know, the, the company that dad was working with, their big thing was they, they were here to replace the PLC. It was the next generation. I think we've heard that quite a bit, even today. Same thing. It was 1998, 99, 1999. And yeah, we, you know, it's going to, this is going to replace the PLC. And here we are, what, 20 some years later. Yep. This is going to replace the PLC. And here, here's my argument with everybody that's like, oh, you, you shouldn't be teaching ladder logic. Is if all the automation companies got together today and said, we're banning ladder logic from all of our controllers that are shipped from today on, then the majority of the equipment you got to work on is still ladder logic for the next 20 years. Vlad, tell us how much you hate ladder logic now. I look, I wouldn't say that I hate ladder logic. I, I think I've just worked on a number of applications that should not have been written in ladder logic. And I was to some extent pigeonholed by the customer's requirements to do it in ladder logic, right? I think that's, I look, I'm, I don't want to say like I'm completely language agnostic because I think that ladder logic lends itself extremely well to the electrical, um, you know, diagrams that we've developed a lot in the past. And I think it makes a lot of things very simple, right? So I can pick up ladder logic and by following what's going on 
uh, on my electrical schematics, I can very easily understand PLC code. I think that there's also something to be said that in uh, traditional software, you have a lot more possibility, which is on one side a curse, but on the uh, on one side a blessing, on the other side a curse, right? So it's very easy to create more custom software in, uh, let's say, structured text or like a traditional programming language. I'm not saying it's not possible to do the exact same thing in both. I think it is. It's just easy to have these different tangents that you can go on. So I, I certainly have a, a positive experience with ladder logic, but I would say that some projects were a little bit uh, more extensive than I would like and could have been done better if they were not uh, in ladder logic. I, I would agree. And I think maybe more importantly, uh, that was kind of the, the lead up con- comment that, that Tim had as well, right? Like he, he is not, uh, he, he, t- he is able to, to program and is able to use a bunch of different programming languages. Um, he is not, you know, solely, a, he is not solely uh, into writing everything in ladder logic as I, I, which is probably different than probably many people. I think there are many people who have learned to write things in ladder logic and, and write everything in ladder logic. Vlad, I think that you've talked about people um, that, that you've worked with in the past who were like really good at writing things in ladder logic and did entire batch processing and all of this other stuff in ladder, which doesn't make sense to, to anyone else. Well, it doesn't make sense why they would spend the time to one, write it in a PLC or, or two, write it in ladder in a PLC, but it was done. So I think, it, I think it's a powerful tool that most people will agree is a fairly powerful tool. Uh, but th- there are certainly potentially better tools for the job. I do like to, I, I do like to, to listen to Tim talk. And, and I think, I think I have mentioned that quote a, a whole bunch of times um, over the show, whenever we've got a guest or whenever we get to the point of potentially bashing ladder logic is, Hey, you know, Ladder logic may not be the best programming language that we can use, but what it is is probably going to be around, uh, maybe more so than anything else for the rest of our career. So, if nothing else, we at least have to understand uh, what ladder logic is. Yeah, I would agree. So, the next conversation we had with Grant, and that was not as long ago with some of the other guests that was episode 82 so that was last fall during cybersecurity awareness month mm-hmm. in october so this episode was sponsored by phoenix contact and we talked a lot about industrial cybersecurity grant made a lot of interesting points but ultimately i want to bring his i want to say concerns but his also non-concerns on the plc side and you'll see what i mean in the clip so i'm going to play it and we can have a discussion on cybersecurity. Yeah, if you're talking ransomware, it's it's going to be low-hanging fruit because all they're trying to do is create the the, you know, ransomware malware that can affect the most systems to get the most impact and get the most return on that ransom. So, if they can cl- encrypt a bunch of PCs that are critical to operations and they ask for 2 million dollars in ransom, then that's fine enough for them. Um, you know, we haven't really seen ransomware for PLCs yet. I know Pascal mentioned that in the closing <laughs> concept, comments about ransomware for PLCs. So a very interesting, you know, final comment from Grant, which I think is 
how to say it, very appropriate for the events that have happened over the last like two years. I think we've seen a lot of increase or at least uh, how to say like more awareness around cybersecurity, certainly in the traditional software and IT spaces. And I know that a lot of funds are being poured into those verticals. But I think on the industrial side, we're also seeing not necessarily the same level or the same number of attacks, but we've seen a lot of interesting companies start to develop better cybersecurity, um, I want to say software tools mm -hmm. and best practices on the manufacturing side. And I think like Dragos is a very important company name to mention. I think they started off as initially they were mapping the industrial um, space, but now they are providing cybersecurity solutions for the industrial manufacturer. But maybe to bring this back, what are your thoughts, Dave, on the state of cybersecurity in our industry today? So I will say in a word, Vlad, I think scary, right? Um, I, I think in a word, the state of cybersecurity in our industry is scary. I think Grant brought up a bunch of good points. Uh, before I get to them, I will say, if you guys want to listen to four of the most horrific downer predictions, uh, go back and listen to the October uh, ICS Cybersecurity, uh, Cybersecurity Awareness Month conversations. Oh my goodness, are those four shows that make you want to just press the uh, next button around the point in time that I ask well, what sort of predictions uh, do they look like? But I think Grant brings up a bunch of really good points. And I think they all bring up very good points as cybersecurity experts. Uh, fr from that side, I think that as long as you are not the lowest hanging fruit, right? Like as long as you are not going and putting yourself out there. And as long as you don't have open ports uh, for your PLCs, for your industrial control systems, as long as you don't show up on Shodan, you're probably not the lowest hanging fruit. Like the guys next to you on, on both sides of your industrial, uh, 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 yeah, on both sides of your industrial uh, parks probably are doing things that are going to get themselves hacked or ransomware much easier th than wh whatever you're doing. Uh, so, so with that, I think as long as you don't make yourself an easy target, you're probably going to get by 90, 95% of the time. I, as I think Pascal kind of made a very interesting comment about air gap systems, right? So, so we talk about air gap and we'll talk a little bit more about air gap on, on episode 101, but he talked about air gap systems and man, if you really want to get into a system, you can go find a way to go hack a computer that is not connected to the internet. Be you dump a whole bunch of USB drives and someone eventually plugs in and boom, you can go ahead and get into that. There, there are like IR and other hacking capabilities through windows and stuff like that, that, that again, if you need to, you know, stay awake while you're driving late one night, go listen to all four of those episodes, because there, there are some, certainly some things that will keep you up at night, uh, talking about ICS cybersecurity. So I think that we, we can all be as secure as, as we can, as we want. I think that you have to mitigate as many risks as you, you possibly can. But I think at the end of the day, you have to assume some risk. I think it was just LastPass um, and, and a couple of other password groups I, I just saw in the news again yesterday who were 
in the news because someone like cap copied um, master vault encryption keys and brought it home and their home was hacked or their home was broken into and the master encryption keys were stolen. So some pretty crazy stuff. Uh, what are your thoughts in regard to that Vlad? I would make, you know, a slightly, uh, not necessarily different, but a, a parallel comment that I've certainly learned quite a bit from our conversations around cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. And I have certainly changed the way I perceive things from the OT side, at least, okay. right? Versus maybe before I was a lot more, how to say, like open about putting in a quick patch. And now yeah. I've realized that it's a lot more intricate than I thought it was. And I think okay. that the risks are a lot greater than I thought they were. And so I'm certainly a lot more careful with what I suggest or how I approach, um, you know, some of the, and again, I think like during the pandemic, we've seen a lot more of at the very least solutions that allow you to remote into a site. And I think that in the past, you know, I would have been fine with like, Hey, like let's drop a laptop in that has team viewer or, you know, some kind of like a VPN access. But now I've realized that it's not that simple. And I think that the systems can be compromised a lot easier than I thought through the conversations we've been having. Right. So that's the general comment I will make. I don't know if I have a negative outlook, but I certainly think that we need a lot more um, cybersecurity slash IT expertise on, um, on the OT side. And I know that we've talked with, uh, Josh Varghese specifically, but I think he's more like on the network side, right? So he understands industrial networks extremely well. I think it would be good, or I think in the next couple of decades, we'll see a lot more cybersecurity experts work on the OT side and be able to sort of not necessarily capitalize on the need, but I want to say provide the right technology for the industry that needs them and sort of provide the right frameworks also and be that kind of tie in between ITOT. Okay. I I think the industry certainly needs to make some moves. Let me uh, let me let me follow up, Glad. You you mentioned Dragos a, a few times almost every time we talk about ICS uh, cybersecurity. What, what's your love story with Dragos? Are, are, are you uh, are you using the, their software? Uh, do, you, do you know those guys? Uh, why do you continue to mention Dragos? I, I feel like that we, we are building up to something here. I, to be honest with you, know nothing about them besides what I've read on the website. And I followed a couple of people that uh, I think from some of our even sponsors went to work for Dragos and had a really good experience. I think that what they're doing, at least from what it seems from my side, looks extremely interesting, but I certainly don't have much more than that. Okay. Full stack ICS cybersecurity uh, right there, Vlad. We'll have, to, uh, we'll have to get you connected with some of these Dragos people so that you can go take a so demo. Too. And uh, yeah, so you can go get a demo. And, uh, and then the next time you talk about ICS cybersecurity uh, and you, you bring up Dragos, you can, uh, you can have some high points of, uh, of conversation uh, with Good. that. But speaking of high points, uh, as we look at, you know, what is the, the last clip to, uh, to go end out episode 100 uh we might have a couple of closing comments after this but man it's really difficult to go with anyone other than, than arlen nipper uh, arlen nipper episode 67 uh i 
I hands down think that Arlen has the best demo in industry. Uh, we've got a live build coming up uh, at the end of March. Uh, stay tuned uh, for some uh, for some official announcements when it comes to that. But Arlen, Arlen has the best demo when it, when it comes to MQTT. I saw it a number of years ago. I heard it gets even better. Um, where he goes, he he goes uh, kind of opens and builds an entire ignition system with, with UDTs, uh, something like 60,000 tags, and then I think he hits the transmit button, and then he goes and he builds a digital twin in uh, in AWS, uh, something along those lines. So I will say, if you are interested in MQTT, absolutely reach out to Arlen over at CirrusLink, but. I, I know that there has been talk that, that Vlad and I only ask the easy questions. Here, we're asking Arlen, well, I, I guess I'm asking Arlen a, a bit of a difficult question uh, when it comes to MQTT. MQTT is coming up on 25 years old. You know, that is fairly legacy, uh, you know, age-wise. Is, is MQT at some point going to be looked at in the short term as a legacy solution or where are you guys perhaps 20 years ahead of your time and you have built a spec and a solution that the rest of the world is now ready to go ahead and leverage? <laughs> well, it was, it was fairly obscure until about mm -hmm. six or seven years ago. So yes. it kind of, it lived, it lived at the layer of IBM, you know, yeah. consulting services. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, really, I think it's the realization of what TCPI can do for you, what TCPIP does, mm -hmm. uh, what cloud computing can do, what networking can do. And I think it all came together in a perfect storm of MQTT just popped up and, oh, well, geez, that's kind of simple, mm -hmm. uh, isn't it? You know? And so I think if I put an age on it, I would say, yeah, Andy and I were ahead of our time in that again, there was no notion of the Internet of Things. There were no notion of cloud. Uh, TCP IP was just emerging. So I think it sat there in obscurity for a very long time before something popped out. Now, you and Vlad asked me before, there's OPCUA, there's MQTT and Sparkplug. I, I don't see anything else coming out right now. I mean, I would... I would love to, I'm a propeller head. I'd love to figure out what new things are out there. But um, right now, I think there's a ton of, of really cool applications. And we take, you know, like the, the PLC manufacturers, if I'm going to do a really small compact sensor, right, my overhead, if you look at the MQTT spec, the original one that Andy and I did, it was 18 pages long, mm. 18 pages. I mean, typically when I'm working with OEMs that are trying to do MQTT, they may not have all the kinks worked out, like you said, Vlad, or they, but they probably can get a client up and running in a day. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on, on MQTT, Vlad? Have you, have you used it much, uh, more than in the last two or three years? Uh, I know you've used it a little bit. What are your thoughts on, on MQTT spec that we are only going to continue to see more of or, or spec that maybe we, we talk more about than we see in the field? Yeah, I think it's an interesting protocol. And this goes back to uh, the comment somebody made in chat earlier, which is I think it's gaining traction through the user base and it's mm -hmm. becoming better and better. There's a number of vendors that now support and provide 
you know, cloud MQTT servers, and, and there's a number of them. Uh, and I think that the protocol is certainly fairly easy to use, right? So I've done a, pro a few projects on it. It's not extremely complicated to figure out. I think it's also the methodology of publish and subscribe versus, mm -hmm. you know, the poll response that you would get with OPC UA. However, I still think that both are viable, right? And depending on mm -hmm. how you engineer or how you write software, I don't necessarily see that there's a huge bottleneck or a, you know, maybe like 10x advantage in either one, mm -hmm. unless there's specific kind of edge cases, right? And I think Arlen discussed where, or you mentioned that the demo he does is, you know, 20,000, 30,000 tags. I think that MQTT can automatically discover that based on the information published into your broker. But I still think that, again, in the projects, at least that I've worked on, that maybe is not the main pain point always, right? I think that you still need to go and get the context from your downstream systems. And unless you're extremely well standardized, it still becomes difficult to make sense of the data that's coming in, even though it's coming in, um, you know, right out of the box. So mm -hmm. I, I think like I'm still, you know, I'm still on the fence whether like one is 10x better than the other in every applicable scenario. I think that it needs to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis, but I certainly understand uh, the advantages of MQTT versus OPC UA and vice versa. Absolutely. I, uh, we talked to Arlen on episode 67 about MQTT versus OPC UA. And I think kind of our, our general comments and, and my general comments towards everyone is both are, are really good solutions. I think that there are probably very few people out there who are going to tell you that you have to use one protocol and not the other. And if they are telling you you've got to use one protocol but not the other, they probably have some sort of ulterior motive behind saying one, one is better than the other. I have heard have not used uh, OPC UA PubSub, so I believe PubSub is also available as an architecture for OPC UA. I think there are some values of PubSub um, just in general. Uh, so, but if we look at OPC UA PubSub versus MQTT with its PubSub, I, I think that there are certainly different applications in which it is easier. Uh, on the MQTT side, we, we see a lot of consumer uh, we see a lot of consumer groups kind of leveraging MQTT because of its open source for data transmission, right? So I think Facebook Messenger, uh, historically in like a very big case study, kind of needed something, needed data transmission that was lighter weight than what they were currently using, found MQTT and solved battery drain and other issues that they were having kind of uh, on the initial. I think MQTT sure. is really good, especially if you've got a bunch of remote sites or remote wells, I think that that makes I think that that makes a whole lot of sense. I think that if I were to go build a new facility today, I would strongly take a look at MQTT to see if hey, does MQTT because of cost, because of servers, because of network issues, because of a bunch of things, doesn't make a lot of does it make more sense than potentially leveraging uh, OPC UA uh, somewhere? So I would say on my side, I would go take a look at all of those things. Uh, but to the conversation that, that we had with Arlen, I think that MQTT is only going to continue to gain traction as we look at different uh, as we look at different tools. I think we see a lot of hardware 
Uh, so to if if memory serves, I think all of the Opto 22 uh, stuff is MQTT enabled. I believe you can get MQTT uh, on the Siemens S7 1500. I think also S7 1200. Um, so MQTT is right out of the box. The the big laggard in protocols uh, is Rockwell, right? So uh, I do not believe you can get the controller compact logics with MQTT out of the box. And I think that North America may be kind of holding it back. I know that there are a bunch of other uh, service and solutions providers, Bedrock Automation. I played around with some of their kind of initial uh, OSAs, uh, their, their controllers. I know that those are MQTT. So there are certain a bunch of opportunities and all the way down to like the Raspberry Pis, right? So like I know that you can leverage OPC, uh, I'm sorry, MQTT with those. So I think we'll see a lot of consumer grade um, and a lot of consumer knowledge on that, especially because like you can throw up a, a, an MQTT mosquito broker and it's like $0. And so because you can do all of those things, and because they're really powerful tools, I think we'll see a lot of consumers do that. And maybe it's the opposite of what we see with ladder logic, right? Or maybe it's very similar to the conversation we were having where coding and other hardware capabilities on the outside of the, the plant life go and bring plant go go and bring opportunities on the inside of of, of plant life. And so I, I think that that could be uh, that could be very interesting. Um, but we actually have some some congratulations in, in order, Vlad. Uh, and man, I, I feel like had we realized this this anniversary, uh, we, we would have made announcements and things like that last uh, last week. So so we had burned on last week. Burned is I'm gonna call him like the, the head honcho project product manager for the initial S7 1500. Have you seen what happened like yesterday or, or two days ago? Do you see what anniversary it was for the S7 1500? Uh, 10 years, right? 10 years. Um, again, had we realized it, we, we could have made the announcements and like broke the story on Manufacturing Hub. But here we are, laggards a couple of days behind as opposed to a couple of days ahead. But th that, that is amazing. Uh, it, it is amazing. One, that the S7-1500 has been kind of at, at the peak for the last 10 years. And, and two, honestly, that it's only been 10 years that, uh, that they are kind of at the peak of uh of everything they are doing how many s7 1500s do you have behind you vlad only one dave only, only one siemens john lewis everyone on the siemens side you guys got to send vlad like 25 more s7 1500s if you guys look he's got the wide camera angle going today look how much wall space he has to, to just like maybe all the way around and just husks of maybe just the S7 1500 boxes and uh, it can like frame all of, all of your other electronics. Yeah. I think it's uh, again, maybe like on the protocol side, Dave, to bring us back, the comment I was going to make is I think that a vast majority of applications can be done with MQTT or OPC UA, right? Mm -hmm. There's certainly going to be edge cases. And I think that, there's a lot of advocacy for using one or the other to gain some maybe improvement of using one protocol versus the other. Mm -hmm. But my comment, and to bring this back to the PLC side, I think that a lot of applications could be built on various different platforms, right? Like I think that we a lot of times are maybe very segmented into one or the other, but in non-edge cases you can do it on either one right and to come 
back to the maybe even the latter logic question, it can be done reliably in other uh, forms of programming. It could be run on different PLCs. But I think, again, when those edge cases come into play, that's where you're going to gain an advantage with maybe MQTT or OPC UA or with the Siemens platform, Rockwell, uh, Opto 22, whatever that may be. Uh, and so those are, I want to say, the interesting scenarios, right? And I'm, mm-hmm. how to say, like very excited to see those limits sometimes. And that's why maybe uh, we push or try to push the envelope, right? Because again, I don't, let's say on the MQTT side, well, maybe it works really great with 20,000 tags. What about 100,000 mm-hmm. tags? What's the trade-off on, you know, the pipeline versus uh, me being able to pull, let's say, OPC UA every five minutes, right? And maybe that's all I need in terms of that specific Mm -hmm. data. So I'm going to pull only five minutes at a time. And so now my bandwidth is significantly less than MQTT sending constant messages between all the clients and the broker. But anyways, I'm, you know, I digress a little bit. I think that there's certainly trade-offs with, uh, with everything. Yeah, l- let's not get into the OPC UA uh, versus MQTT and, uh, and have to pull out the whiteboard to, uh, to determine how, uh, how we want to send messages and how much bandwidth, et cetera, is, uh, is being taken up with that. I think that we can all agree that there are very easy, very good opportunities uh, to leverage either or both. I have seen many applications, uh, especially newer applications that are levering, leveraging both uh, for, for a variety of yep. reasons. Uh, but if you guys are, are listening and are using MQTT, MQTT or OPC UA or, or OPC DA or any of those other things, uh, drop, us, uh, drop us comments below, send us messages. Uh, yes, send us messages and let us know what your favorite, uh, l- let us know what your favorite protocol is and, and why you're using it. Vlad, do you have any other last closing comments before we say goodbye to everyone for today and tell them we'll catch them tomorrow morning to continue on uh, to continue on the ITOT convergence theme? No, I think this was a really good recap. I'm, how to say it, like I'm very grateful for being able to look back and see the conversations we've had. And it's almost like a flashback for me. And I start remembering that entire conversation as soon as I hear, you know, maybe like a two minute clip. So I think it's uh, great to be able to revisit that. I hopefully, I hope that we get to do this a little bit more often in the future. I want to thank everyone who's been listening to us, all the sponsors. I know there's a lot of people who are reoccurring or reappearing in our chat. So certainly want to thank them. Um, And yeah, I I think to a hundred more episodes, Dave. Oh, only a hundred more, Vlad. You heard it here. Vlad is going to retire on episode two hundred. No, uh, absolutely, Vlad. Th- th- this has been fantastic. Uh, I made the I've made the comment earlier today uh, that when you and I initially started this, there there were times where I weren't sure we were going to make it to episode ten. I don't know how we've made it to episode one hundred, uh, but but it has been amazing, and we've been very blessed to have uh, some great guests. Uh, yeah, we've been blessed to have some great guests, some some amazing conversations. Thank you again to uh, to everyone uh, who has come to to hang out and and listen 
uh, or watch and listen uh, over the course of the last hundred episodes. I I feel like 2023 is is certainly going to be the best year yet. We've got some some awesome plans. Um, I will go ahead and reiterate. So uh, my, my plan is to take Manufacturing Hub to Hanover, uh, Hanover Mess or Hanover Messy Germany. Um, in the middle of April, and I am 90-95% tentative to head up Automate in Detroit at the end of May. Uh, we will see what, uh, what, what Vlad's uh, other commitments uh, and if they allow him to, uh, to go make it to an event at some point in the, in the first half or the second half of this year. But my thought is we will continue to do more of those. If you guys have thoughts or, or feedback, we always like to uh, to talk to you guys. Uh, the best website to check us out is manufacturinghub.live. And if you've made it this far, please feel free. Uh, and we, we ask you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button on Solus, on LinkedIn, to go ahead and follow myself and Manufacturing Hub and Vlad. Uh, and if you are listening in podcast format, thank you guys for listening. I am honestly shocked you guys continue to listen and you guys continue to listen at significant levels uh, comparative to kind of previous months. Every couple of months we, we grab, I don't know, another hundred or a couple hundred listeners, which is uh, which is pretty awesome. Uh, so if you guys are listening on podcast format, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that follow button, rate us five stars, and make sure that the latest episodes download automatically into your uh, into your podcast feed. But no, until next time, uh, which is tomorrow morning for anyone watching live, uh, we will catch you all soon. Thank you.